0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're starting a new sermon series this morning, uh, and the plan is to spend most of the fall going through 1 Thessalonians. Uh, first Thessalonians was Paul's second book written uh, in the New Testament. It was written by Paul around 50 AD, uh, just a few short months, as I said before, uh, after Acts 17 uh, happened. And so as a reminder, the first 10 verses in Acts chapter 17, uh, th- those 10 verses tell the story of Paul and Timothy and Silas entering Thessalonica, uh, preaching the gospel, uh, seeing many converted in those three short weeks and then being run out of town uh, because of intense uh, persecution. And by the way, just as a programming note, uh, Silas was the preferred name, uh, was the name Luke preferred to use. Silvanus is a more uh, technical name. Uh, it's, it's the name that Peter and Paul used of this one man named Silas or this one man uh, named Silvanus. But as I was saying, saying, there was such an intense persecution from both jealous Jews and power-hungry uh, Greeks Uh, that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they had to leave Thessalonica after 21 days. But listen to this. You would be hard pressed to point to any other three weeks in Paul's ministry that were more fruitful, more pivotal, or more impactful than the three weeks he spent in Thessalonica. In fact, many, many believe, and I'm inclined to agree with them, many believe that the church in Thessalonica was the healthiest and most productive church ever planted by Paul. It took three weeks. Uh, historians and commentators will tell you that, that the great revival of significant proportion, maybe the greatest revival in church history, happened among the church of the Thessalonians in 50 AD. We'll come back to that. After being uh, immediately sent away uh, by these new believers because of persecution, Paul and Timothy and Silas go to Berea. And while in Berea, uh, the same persecutors from Thessalonica, they they follow the team there and they wreak such havoc on them there that they had to flee even further to Athens. And while in Athens, about a month or two after planting this church in Thessalonica, uh, Paul from Athens sends Timothy back to the infant church, back to the new believers, uh, back to the baby Christians. And he wants Timothy to check on them. There are no text messages. There's no email. There's no phone lines. There's no way for him to know if these new converts are remaining faithful or doing okay, or if they've completely given up. And while Timothy was in Thessalonica, Paul again had to move on and he moved to, to Corinth. And then we find out, all of this is in the, the book of Acts, by the way, we, we find out that Timothy uh, rejoins Paul in Corinth and Timothy gave him the amazing news of what was still happening in Thessalonica. And so I want to be clear, in this book, we're going to find that the Thessalonians were really confused about a lot of things. Uh, In this book, we're going to find that they, like every Christian, still, uh, they were dealing with sin. They were dealing with issues of holiness. They they continued to need the teaching uh, of the apostle. But by and large, the report that Paul got from Timothy was very encouraging. And so the book that we're about to study is Paul writing them to encourage them over what has happened in the past and to prepare them for what will come in the future, And so this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna take the entire first chapter of the book and I wanna look at the entire first chapter and I wanna see it as what I call a theological remembrance. It's Paul looking back over a few short months and understanding those months through his theological understanding of life. And instead of diving into every detail, I want us to just see this theological remembrance from Paul. I would tell you this, last thing, one of the last things before I have you stand Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter one is a great introduction to the whole book. Almost everything mentioned in the first chapter will come up again in the next four chapters. And so if we talk about something or if we mention something or if we pique your interest in regards to something, I'd encourage you to come back and keep coming back because we will most likely dive deeper uh, into those topics uh, in time. 1 Thessalonians one, one to 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy from the wrath to come. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Hopefully you can see why I called uh, chapter one a theological remembrance. It's Paul remembering and applying great theology to these incredible and extraordinary first few months of his relationship with the Thessalonians. In, In chapter one, Paul records what happened, why it happened, and how it happened. What happened, why it happened, how it happened. So first, what happened? What happened in Thessalonica? Uh, In short, uh, a great many were faithful, fruitful, joyful, and missional. Let's start this way. Uh, A great many. Uh, Acts chapter uh, 17, verse four. Let's go ahead and put that on the screen. I apologize. There you go. I put one too many slides in there great many. In Acts seventeen four. it's again, it's in your worship folder. It's the call to worship. I'm going to refer to it frequently. Luke writes this about the Thessalonians response to Paul's three weeks of ministry. He says, and some of them that is Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. It's hard to know for sure what Paul, or excuse me, what, what Luke means by a great many, but if you look at Luke's usage of that same phrase in the book of Acts and in the Gospel of Luke, uh, it's safe to say that hundreds and likely thousands of the 100,000 residents of Thessalonica, quote, joined Paul and Silas. Uh, Paul himself seems to allude to a large number of people in verse 2 when he writes this. Uh, We give thanks to God always for all of you. And so what happened? First, a great many. Second, a great many were faithful. Look down at verses eight to 10. By that, I mean that a great many placed their faith in Jesus. A great many were converted. Faith in the Bible is understood as a resource within every human being. Uh, Faith is, is a resource in the Bible that each human being has that they get to place in something or someone outside of themselves. Faith is this resource that you and I, this trust that you and I get to place in someone or something outside of ourselves, wherein we believe that that someone or that something will give us life and meaning and satisfaction and identity and salvation. And Paul writes in verse eight that the the report of the Thessalonians, quote, faith in God had gone forth into Macedonia, into Achaia. These are the two Roman provinces that encompass what was, uh, what was Greece prior to the Roman Empire. And then look at verse nine. Paul elaborates and further explains faith. This is what we mean when we say a great many became faithful. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. A great many were faithful. By, by this, we mean that hundreds, if not thousands, stopped trusting in their idols and began trusting in God. In case you're new to the Bible, I want to explain something to you about idols. Idolatry in the Bible is placing your faith. It's placing your trust into any created thing instead of the creator. And so oftentimes in many cultures and at many points in history, an idol uh, would be represented by a real physical image. But at the same time, the the concept of idolatry in the Bible is not contained to just physical images. For example, the Bible often talks about these things as being idols, greed, love of money, uh, even the desire for, for sexual immorality. And so the Bible would in fact include physical images in in the the, the idea of idolatry, but the Bible would also include the inordinate desire for for immaterial things as idolatry as well. And and so an idol is anything other than Jesus that we place our faith in. An idol is anything other than Jesus that, that we look to for life and for meaning and for identity and for happiness and for significance. An idol is a material or immaterial reality in which we trust. So I wanna, I wanna help you think through uh, why what happened in these three, three weeks in 50 AD was so incredible. Many historians argue that Thessalonica as the capital of Macedonia is the capital of that which was Greece. Many argue that this was the second most important city uh, at the time in the world, second only to Rome. And we know from various sources that that in Thessalonica, there were many temples and there were many idols. Uh, We know from inscriptions and from archeology span that there were temples and idols to the Greek mythology. In fact, fact, Mount Olympus uh, could be seen from the town of Thessalonica. We know that there were temples and idols from the historic Egyptian cults. We we know that there were temples and idols from the imperial cult. Uh, That that meaning that there were idols of Caesar, idol of Caesar's family, idols of, of, of Caesar's officials. And in that context, in the context of a global city with dozens of idols, at least hundreds, if not thousands, turn from their idols, turn from their false worship, and turn to God in faith. It's likely that three to 5% of the residents of Thessalonica said this, I will no longer look for life in these Greek, these Egyptian, these Roman idols. I will find life in the gospel and I will find life in my relationship with Jesus. Let me give you a, potent, a potential contemporary uh, illustration of this so that our minds can get around how big of a deal this is. This would be like 3 to 5% of Manhattan's 1.5 million residents. This would be like 30 to 45,000 Manhattan residents converting to Christianity in three weeks. 30 to 45,000 people placing their faith in God, saying in effect, I will no longer seek life. I will no longer place my faith in my job, my education, my alma mater, my body, my human relationships, my alma mater's football team, my art, my career, my sex life, my various hobbies and pleasures. I will find my life in Jesus and I will sacrificially serve him with my life. And I will wait to experience ultimate satisfaction when he returns from heaven. What happened? A great many were faithful and, verse three, fruitful. Look at verse three. By by fruitful, I, I simply mean that according to Paul, all of the converts to Christianity were displaying in their lives the evidence of faith. In verse three, Paul talks about remembering in prayer the Thessalonians' faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope are heart-level realities. Faith, love, and hope are these internal postures of the heart. Faith is a believer's posture towards God, trusting him and trusting his way of life. Love is a believer's heart posture towards other people, uh, serving and promoting them instead of yourself. Hope is a believer's heart posture towards the future. Believing that one day Jesus will come back and he will make all things right. Uh, Believing that one day Jesus will come back and he'll make all sad things untrue. Believing that one day Jesus will come back and he will reward us for everything we've ever invested into his kingdom. These are heart level postures towards God and people and the future. But notice what Paul writes. He doesn't just remember the heart posture, he doesn't remember uh, this heart level reality. He remembers the fruit or the evidence that flows from these realities. Look at verse three, he remembers their quote, work of faith, the work from faith, the work that was produced by faith. In general, in the Bible, work means obedience to God's laws. But in particular, in the New Testament, work means a caring for and, and sacrificing yourself for the needs and the wants of those who are poor and don't have everything they need. Paul's saying, I remember not just your faith towards God, but your faith being expressed towards those in need. And then he says, I remember not just your love, but I remember your labor of love uh, or your burdensome toil from love, your sacrificial efforts that were produced by love. And Paul says, I also remember the steadfastness, steadfastness of or, or from or produced by your hope. Look at verse two. Paul says of the Thessalonians, all of you, Didn't just change your theology. You didn't just introduce a new God into the pantheon of your heart. All of you were fruitful. All of you were expressing and living out of the heart, uh, living your heart out into the nitty gritty details of your life. What happened? A, A great many were faithful. A great many were fruitful. And next we see that verse six, a great many were joyful. Look at verse six. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The persecution being experienced in Macedonia was very severe. We know that people were dying. We know this from First and Second Thessalonians. We know this from the book of Acts. Not only were there jealous Jews trying to stop the Christians, but there were power-hungry Greeks working to squelch this revival. Here's why. Thessalonica was a conquered city of Rome. But Thessalonica had broken with its past and had significantly aligned itself with Rome. Thessalonica had so convincingly aligned itself with Rome that Rome, the Roman Empire, Caesar, allowed Thessalonica to be what was called a free city. That is to say this, unlike Jerusalem, for example, Thessalonica was a city within the Roman Empire that could govern itself. Thessalonica was a city within the Roman Empire that didn't pay taxes to Rome. Thessalonica was a city in the Roman empire that didn't have to show hospitality to Roman soldiers. Thessalonica had gained this status as a free city with all of these perks because they vowed their highest allegiance and they vowed their worship to Caesar. This is why Luke writes in Acts 17 that the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard that the Christians were acting against the decrees of Caesar and saying that there was another king, another supreme, namely Jesus. The Romans were not persecuting the Christians in Thessalonica. We learn from Acts 17 that it was jealous Jews and power-hungry Greeks trying to stop the Christians before Rome heard about this King Jesus that was more important than Caesar. Don't miss the point. Paul says that the Thessalonians were trusting in God and not idols. Paul says that they were practically living out their faith and their relationships and that they received the gospel uh, with contagious joy, even in the midst of severe and deadly persecution. Finally, what happened? Uh, A great many were faithful, fruitful, joyful, and verse eight, missional. Uh, somewhat awkwardly, in verses seven and eight, Paul says two things about the Thessalonians. First, he says that their faith in God and their joyful reception of the gospel in the midst of persecution, he said that this reality has become an example or a modern, uh, a model or a pattern for the rest of the believers in Macedonia and in Caia. And in fact, he says in verse eight, that their reception of the gospel and their model of behavior in the midst of persecution had become an example, quote, everywhere. But to our point here, look at verse eight. Paul also says that the word of the Lord, that's a way for for Paul to talk about the gospel. He says, the gospel sounded forth from them into Macedonia and Achaia. In other words, Paul said in a few months, the believers in Thessalonica evangelized, took the gospel to the two provinces that encompassed all of what was Greece. This verb for sounded forth is only found in the New Testament and it's used in the Greco-Roman culture to talk about thunderclaps. Paul Paul says that from this strategic city of Macedonia, from this city that sat on the east-west and the north-south trade routes, uh, from this city that enjoyed a great natural harbor wherein they could get to other cities quickly, from this city, these brand new believers evangelized, thundered forth into all of Greece, the gospel. Can you begin to see why many consider this to be the most productive, pivotal, and impactful three weeks in Paul's ministry? That'd be hard to beat. Can you begin to see why many believe, and I'm inclined to agree, that this is the healthiest church that Paul ever planted? This, by the way, is the church that Paul references when he writes to the Corinthians, one of the least healthy churches he ever planted. And he says, why can't you be like the people in Macedonia? (laughs) Can you see why historians would say this is one of the greatest revivals in the history of Christianity? A great many were faithful, fruitful, joyful, and missional. And that was our longest point by a long shot. But I said this morning, we would look at Paul's theological remembrance by considering what happened, why it happened, and how it happened. And if you're anything like me right now, you're saying, let's jump into the how. How did this happen? By what means and what strategies did this happen? Because I don't know about you, but I've been here for seven years and I've been asking God to do something like this in Orlando all seven years. I don't know about you, but I would love to see this happen uh, in at least one of our church plants in India. I don't know about you, but while I'd love to see this happen for thousands, I have friends and family I've been praying for for years. I would just like to see this happen in one or two of their lives. How did this happen? I don't know about you, but I'd like to see this happen in my life. I would love to trust in idols less and in God more. Uh, I would love to be more sacrificial in my life I would love to get more mission into my calendar. How did this happen? And so if you're like me, you may want to jump straight to the how. There's a ton of wisdom, I believe, in first considering why. Why did this happen? Because what we're gonna see is we're gonna see that this extraordinary revival happened, well, let let me start over. But before we see how this does move my mind right there, I completely lost, I think I remembered I was here, but I completely lost track of where I was. A little sleep-deprived. Okay, before we see how this extraordinary revival happened, we need to see why it happened. Because, and this is huge, this is the part I was trying to recall. We're gonna find, what we're gonna find is that the how of the extraordinary is the same how of the ordinary. We're gonna find that the how of the extraordinary is the same how of the ordinary, and that the extraordinary nature of the impact in Thessalonica Thessalonica and Macedonia was not based on the how or the strategy, but the why or the power. So why did it happen? I'll put this on the screen. In short, it happened because God wanted it to happen. In fact, it happened because God from eternity past planned for it to happen exactly as it did. There's a great little line in Acts chapter 17. In, in that place where Luke is talking about this incredible revival, he tells us about the mission in Thessalonica and he says that Paul, quote, as was his custom, as was his habit, he did X, Y, and Z. In other words, Paul did in Thessalonica what he did in every city. The how, the strategy, the means were always the same. And so the result in Thessalonica was not based on the how, but the why. Why did it happen? Because God wanted it to happen. Paul's gonna show us this, this very obviously and more subtly. Look, look at your passage, most obviously. Look at verses four and five. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul is saying that he and his apostolic band were proclaiming the gospel in word as they always did in every city. But the gospel came to the Thessalonians not only in words, but he says with the power and the conviction that is provided by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says that this accompanying power and conviction is how he and his team knows that God, quote, chose or elected them. Verse four. Why did it happen? God wanted it to happen. Paul clearly says in Ephesians 1 and in several other places that God, before the foundation of the world, chose, same word, elected, all he would love, save, and adopt into his family. And this means that while Paul and his team kept doing the same thing over and over, the results of their ministry was not tied to their strategies, but to the sovereign power and the sovereign choice of God Almighty. I don't know how you could understand verses 4 and 5 any other way. And while that's very obvious, I think verses 2 and 3 teach the same thing in a more subtle fashion. Look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think, why would Paul constantly and always thank God for every one of the Thessalonians, faith, love, and hope? Why wouldn't he thank the Thessalonians for their faith, love, and hope? Why didn't he write, hey, you guys should thank me for my amazing strategies that brought about your faith, your love, and your hope? Why does he thank God? Because God is the ultimate source of their faith, love, and hope. The Bible is clear here, Ephesians 2, Romans 9, faith, love, and hope are gifts to be received from God. Why did it happen? God wanted it to happen. I'm not trying to start a fight. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm not trying to diminish the Thessalonians responsibility to believe, to love, and to hope. All I'm saying is what the Bible says. That before we or our neighbor can see Jesus for the first time or more clearly, God has to first remove our blindness and give us eyes to see. That before we or our family member can hear and understand the gospel for the first time or more deeply, God has to first remove the deafness in our ears. That before we or our coworker can love Jesus for the first time or more deeply than yesterday, God has to first break in and soften our hard hearts. I'm not trying to start a fight. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just trying to say what the Bible says, and I'm trying to say it for the exact same reason the Bible says it. That we might be encouraged that God is saving us, and that we might go and tell other people about Jesus because he's saving people. What happened? Something of historic proportion. Why did it happen? God wanted it to. How did it happen? Happened the same way that Paul did ministry in every other city. How did it happen? I'm guessing this will be redundant by now. Paul and his team kept preaching the gospel. This is in verse 5. This is where Acts 17 is so helpful to our text. Paul says, You received the gospel from us, not just in word, but power and Holy Spirit and conviction. But, but what he said in his sermons is revealed by Luke in Acts 17. If you will, look at the front of your worship folder, starting in verse two, and look at what Paul preached. And Paul went into the synagogue as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Paul kept telling them that the divine Messiah of the Old Testament wouldn't just come and deliver them from their enemy. Paul kept telling them that the divine Messiah of the Old Testament would also have to come and die on their behalf because they had sinned against God and declared themselves as God's enemy. He kept reasoning with them from the scriptures that the Messiah wasn't gonna just deliver them from the ultimate enemy, but the Messiah was gonna die for them because in their sin, they had declared themselves the enemy of God. How will our city, how will our friends, how will our family come to experience something like what happened in Thessalonica? How will it happen? Not why, but how? We as God's people will have to keep telling them that they, like we, messed up so badly that only the death of God could save them. But that they, like us, are so deeply loved, God did exactly that in Jesus Christ. Are we doing that? Are we? How will we know if God wants to save them, if we don't go to them and tell them? Are we doing that? How did this revival happen? It happened when Paul and his teammates communicated grace and peace over and over. Verse 1. The customary greetings in the synagogues would have simply been peace. Shalom. It was a word that meant connectedness and wholeness and flourishing. It was a word where one Jew would say to another, I wish upon you the peace that, that, that is the peace with God and the peace within and the peace with others and the peace in creation. And Paul kept saying to them, grace to you and then peace. You can't earn peace. The Jews thought, we know from intertestamental writings, the Jews thought that if they would keep God's law well enough, particularly the Sabbath, if they would keep the Sabbath well enough, God would send this Messiah. God would kick Rome out of Jerusalem and they would have their shalom. They would have their utter peace. And Paul, in his letters, every time he greets his readers, first with grace and then peace. They always go in that order. We don't get shalom by our own efforts. We get shalom by the grace and the unmerited favor of God. You don't earn it, you receive it. Grace to you and peace. Are we telling our city and our neighbors and our coworkers? That their deep desire for peace and life and flourishing will only be satisfied when they stop looking for these things in created realities and receive it by grace from the Creator. How can we know whether or not God wants to do something of historic proportion if we're not telling our city and our friends and our family these truths? How does God do it? By us telling them. Will God do it? I don't know. Who knows? It may just be words. Or it could be words accompanied with the power and the full conviction of the Holy Spirit. How does this happen? Well, as their custom, they kept preaching the gospel of Jesus. What will cause me to live more like Paul? What will cause me to stop looking for life in control and approval and success and not being known as an old spiritual fuddy-duddy? It will only be by receiving all that I ever wanted by grace in Jesus. How will I become the kind of man who God might use to do this? the same gospel which we proclaim to those who have never met Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the message that you have given to us that is for us and for our neighbor. We thank you for your incredible grace. We thank you for your unbelievable love. We thank you for how uh, you have started a saving work in us and you have promised to finish this saving work. Jesus, we thank you that none of our salvation is dependent on us and our effort, but that all of it is dependent upon you and your power and your promises. Jesus, we thank you that you have others we would presume in this city that you want to save, that you want to bring from death to life, that you want to bring from darkness to light We thank you that there presumably are more in this city who will worship you for the gospel. We ask that you would use us to reach them. We ask that you would so transform us that we would become communicators and conveyors of this incredible message that the Christ not only rescues from the enemy, but dies for those who have become the enemy. We pray that you would give us all that we need to live more faithfully and fruitfully, joyfully and missionally for you. In your name we pray.